Welcome to Still Becoming, a podcast about how it's never too late to become more free, more yourself, or try something new. I'm Monica DeCristina, a wife, mother, and practicing psychotherapist. Through my own journey, starting with my struggles with anxiety years ago, that led to my professional work as a therapist now, I am fascinated with the process of how we become who we are. We will hear from people telling their stories of becoming, of unbecoming, and overcoming, as well as from experts helping us learn about our own process in the world. We are not designed to stay the same. Our stories are still being written. We are all still becoming. I am so excited to have author and therapist Sissy Goff on the Still Becoming podcast today. I have been a fan of Sissy's for a while now, and I, like maybe many of you, have listened to her on the Raising Boys and Girls podcast. I got sent this podcast originally in a group text from a mom friend saying, you have got to listen to this. I was immediately intrigued and then hooked by two things. As a listener, I am both a mom and a therapist, and here's what I'm looking for. As a mom, maybe like many of you, I don't want to feel mom shamed. I don't want to um, feel overwhelmed. I also, to be honest, want to be comforted and encouraged, and Sissy does that. As a therapist, I am looking for information that is well-researched, well-resourced, and frankly, applicable. Sissy Goff has the most amazing combination of warmth and knowledge. Now talking about anxiety can be, well, anxiety provoking, but Sissy presents it in a way that we can all actually understand and in a way that makes us feel like, wow, we can really conquer this. We can really move through this. We're talking in particular today about anxiety and the rise in anxiety in particular in girls. And we're talking about two of her most recent books, which I cannot recommend enough, Raising Worry-Free Girls, and then the companion book for kids called Braver, Stronger, Smarter. Now, don't we all want to feel braver, stronger, and smarter? My hope is that you will have the same experience I did in this conversation with Sissy. She is going to give you information that you can easily understand, but also information that you probably didn't have before. She's going to do it in a way that is so kind and so warm. You're just going to want to keep talking to her. I didn't really want this conversation to end. I enjoyed it so much. And as an adult who was an anxious child myself, and as a mom of three, And as a therapist, I can't tell you how much I appreciate everything that Sissy shares in our conversation today. I'm so, so excited um, to talk to you. You know, I I told a couple of my friends only that I was talking to you and you are so beloved, Sissy. Like they they just sent back all exclamation marks. I couldn't believe it because um, so many of us mothers just listen to you all the time on um, Raising Boys and Girls, um, your podcast. I've been devouring your books, um, and I love this book, Raising Worry-Free Girls. So I just, you are um, 
such a treasured voice and just such a, a comforting voice for so many of us out here. Well, that means so much. I love hearing that. Thank you for saying that. Absolutely. Um, well, if, let's dive into this book. And I thought what we could do is, you know, talk a little bit about the book um, and, and just talk about, you know, some of the amazing things in it about anxiety, right? Because it was, I'm a therapist, um, myself, um, but for adults, but it was still just the way you put it, it was so eye opening. And one of the things I loved about it, too, was that sometimes adult books try to be fancy, you know, and, and just, they just use words that are um, really kind of confusing. And, and you just really got down to it. And just sort of drew us in and taught us about it. Well, probably as somebody who has counseled kids for 27 years, I don't even talk very fancy because yeah. I'm used to talking <laughs> to them. I have to make sure I'm not saying like too much. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, it it really resonates. And um, I've even recommended it to some adults. Now, I know it's not for adults, but just for to get a handle on what anxiety is and some easy coping mechanisms. Um, it's just really a good tool. Well, and you know, there are two books. Yeah, there's one for parents, one for little girls. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so I so the, the parent one is the one I've recommended to just pretty much everyone that I can. You mean for adults with their own life? Oh, there is one for adults with their own life? No, no, no. That's the one you're saying you recommend. Sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, okay. I sure do. Okay. Yes. I love that. Good. So um, one of the first things I wanted to talk about is your description of anxiety. Um, it was so grounding. And I actually use it all the time in um, therapy now, because it just sums it up so well, um, that, you, that we when we're anxious, we're overestimating the threat. And we're underestimating our ability to cope. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Well, you know, I mean, I'm speaking your language as a fellow therapist, but but part of what happens is when any of us are anxious and the amygdala kicks into gear, it makes everything feel catastrophic. And so just the smallest things feel huge and really debilitating. And so not only is whatever it is that I'm facing that makes me feel anxious, that might not be that big of a deal normally, all of a sudden that's huge, but I don't have the ability to work through it because my rational brain literally has stopped working. Okay. So I don't think I'm capable of moving through whatever it is. You know, for those that don't know what the amygdala is, can and, and this is, I'm so glad you brought it up because I was going to actually talked about that and asked you about that later. So can you tell us just like, just really brief, you know, what the amygdala is as part of your brain and kind of how we get lost there? We got, some people call it their emotional brain. We kind of get stuck there. Yeah. The way the stuck part with kids, I always talk about it being like the one loop roller coaster at the fair. There's one idea yeah. that they just get stuck on and they can't get themselves out of. And that has to do with when their amygdala is driving their brain. So I mean, you know this, we could talk, we could both talk about this at length, but normally we have blood flowing all throughout our brain when we're thinking rationally. And then for any of us, when something starts to make us really anxious or make us really angry, either way, um, the mm -hmm. blood flow shifts away from the prefrontal cortex and it goes to the amygdala and the amygdala dictates the fight, flight, or freeze sometimes response. With kids, I often see more fight or flight. And so um, so when that happens, there is no amount of, you know, I, when I sit with parents in my office, they will say out of the starting gate, they'll say, she's like a crazy person. I cannot reason with her. I can't talk her out of it when she gets to this place. And 
it's literally because the thinking part of their brain has gone offline. So the prefrontal cortex that does help them think rationally and manage their emotions is not getting blood, Wow, which is why all of the things, you know, I feel like mindfulness has become such a buzzword. And then there are people who say, oh, all that mindfulness stuff. Well, the breathing really does get the amygdala out of the driver's seat of the brain. And so it's so important because the deep breathing literally dilates the blood vessels of the brain again to shift the the amygdala to a lesser degree because it becomes like a false alarm. And the more often the amygdala takes over, it develops what's called often a hyper-responsive amygdala. So it kind of de- develops this hair trigger response and it actually enlarges in the brain, Oh, I which didn't is know why that. we really have to fight that. Yes. So if it's happening more and more often, we've really got to be doing some things to correct or it's con- going to continue to be a problem. Wow. Wow. Okay. And that's so, it's so helpful, you know, I think for parents struggling with an anxious kid or adults struggling with anxiety to know that there's, there's really something happening in your brain. Yeah. You know, that kind of takes the shame away from it. Yes. 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 You know, anxiety is, it feels like everybody's talking about it all the time. Um, It feels like an epidemic. And I I think I've heard you say that, you know, it it is in your practice, it's higher than it's than it's been in the past. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of, you know, why you think that is anxiety in girls in particular? I know. I hate it that it's happening to this degree. And, you know, it's funny. How long have you been in practice? Um, over a decade, a decade. Okay. So that's a long time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you've seen some real shifts and that's the cool thing about doing this work for that kind of time period is you do see real shifts with kids, with adults, with parents, I mean, all those things. And, and so at 27 years, you know, when I first started counseling, I mean, really out of every 20 kids who would come through our doors, maybe one or two or three at the most were dealing with anxiety. I mean, really, we, our most recent book before the worry books was called Are My Kids on Track? Mm -hmm. And we wrote that now about eight years ago. And no, actually about five years ago, probably. And, and when we wrote it, the statistics on kids and anxiety were one in eight kids. Now, when I wrote this book, which was we were about a year ago, that the statistics had moved to one in four kids. Oh my god! So it has jumped that much. Can you believe that no, quickly? That's that is mind blowing. Yes. Wow. I know, and it and girls are twice as likely as boys to deal with anxiety. But if David Thomas was sitting here with us, or any of the boy counselors at Daystar, they would say to you that they're seeing boys in droves too that are dealing with it. And and so my hope is the book is applicable to both. Although I work primarily with girls, but, um, but yes, it is an epidemic. And, and I really, I mean, I kind of try to joke with parents just because like you said, this whole anxiety situation, I think it feels like there's some shame and a lot of fear around it. And parents definitely are often anxious themselves. And so I will say, you know, in this juncture of time, if I have a family where their oldest child is a girl, I just think she's going to deal with it to some degree. It just feels like a hundred percent of oldest girls are dealing with it themselves. That's so normalizing as a parent, you know, whose oldest child is a girl. Is, yeah. Um, it just kind of, it takes away like any of the stigma or worry, you know, about that. It's just like, you know what, this is just, this is something that is in our culture right now. And if your child passes through it, well, they're unfortunately in really good company. They are in really good company. I was sitting in the airport two days ago and at one of those restaurants where you face out and watch people walk down the terminal. And I saw this 
family walking down and the person in front of the family who was pointing out all the directions you could tell was the oldest daughter. She looked like she was about 13 (laughs) and there was a seven year old boy, you know, dragging Uh behind, dropping his stuff, not paying any attention. And the parents were following the oldest daughter. And I I mean, I looked at her and laughed and thought, bless her heart. She probably has anxiety, you know. Yes, I'm sure she does. And she's carrying it, carrying it all on her shoulders. I know. I know. And why do you think it is, you know, that that leap from one in eight to one in four, you know, in in about five years, that statistic. Why do you think it's so high, particularly in girls? Girls are twice as likely to have anxiety or struggle with it. Yeah. why do you think that's happening? And I mean, maybe we don't know, but I'm just curious since you are, this is, you do this work every day. What are you hearing and seeing? I wish we knew. I used to joke that it was gluten. I don't think it's gluten, but you know, I wish there was oh, some great. magic yeah. formula that yeah. we could say, this is it. Uh-huh. But I mean, I think there are a lot of different pieces of it. And one that's true for girls and boys, we can come back to this because it's both. And I do feel like it's so important is the parent. Parents definitely play a role. We can come back to that. But for girls in particular, you know, I I do believe there is more pressure on girls than there's ever been. I, David, who's my counterpart at Daystar, we laugh. I mean, it's not anything to laugh about. It's really sad. But I would say I've never heard as many girls sitting in my office saying, I'm making 94s and that's not okay with me. I've got to get up. You know, that now they can make a hundred plus because of AP and all the extra (laughs) things they can do. Um, And he would say he's never heard as many boys care less about school. So it does feel like there's this pressure. And I had a senior in high school say to me, we live at this time that girls can do anything mm-hmm. and it starts to translate to that we have to do everything. Oh, and, yeah. and that feels like part of it, you know, between athletics and academics and extracurriculars and music and, you know, all these different things that kids are involved in that are fantastic. It really becomes too much. And then girls are trying to carry so much relationally. And then we add social media in it. I mean, I have a whole section just about Snapchat streaks in the book, but you know, we factor that in and I can't even, I cannot fathom growing up with that in the way that kids do. I couldn't either. It's like they can never just go home, you know, and, and and get away. Yeah. Turn it off and get away from it all because it's, it's so present. You know, we don't, we don't use phones for our kids yet. My oldest is in fifth grade. Good for you. Way to go. Yeah. I know. I mean, but there's phones everywhere. There's apparently a fifth grade group chat. Can you imagine uh, yeah. the mess? I hear it every day. It's crazy. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's just, oh, I just, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, in the book, you talk about something that I think is so grounding for all of us and so grounding for any mom listening who's wondering if she should worry, right? She should worry about the worry or the anxiety. You talk about the worry continuum, um, that how we move from fear to worry to anxiety, you know? Um, and I'm wondering if we can kind of walk through this a little bit and, and maybe give some examples, um, starting with like fear, that fear is really a normal part of childhood um, and that we move, you say so um, brilliantly that we move through fears though. Can you tell us a little bit about, about this part of the worry continuum, the fear? 
Yeah. And there's a a portion in the book about just normal childhood fears and the things that all kids will deal with to some degree. And really fear is an emotion that God gave us. That's really a survival instinct. Mm -hmm. And and the amygdala that we were talking about before, that is a really good, important part of our body because it's what keeps us out of danger. And so it's okay for children to go through a phase where, like you're saying, I mean, for example, I have so many parents who talk about that their kids will not go upstairs to take a shower if the parents are downstairs. Yes. You know, that that's (laughs) a normal fear that it's Mm going to be a little bit of separation, a little bit of darkness. You know, there are just these things they pass through that are really normal. A lot of kids are going to hit a point where self-consciousness creeps in just developmentally anyway, but they will likely be afraid of being embarrassed in front of their peers. You know, there are just these things that you'll hear kids talk about more and we really can track developmentally what's a typical fear at different stages. Now, when it moves from fear is more grounded, grounded in something specific. And then as we move to to more anxiety or worry, it's going to be more pervasive. Worry is kind of a state that they stay in rather than just, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to fall on the soccer field, you know, something right, like that. Right. Or throw up in class, you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes. So there's some specific thing it's more rooted to. And then worry is more, they just kind of live with this sense of worry or dread a lot of times. I'm worried that I'm going to mess up in front of my friends. I'm worried that I'm going to fail on a daily basis. And, and, but worry, I think can feel pretty manageable for any of us. There are things that we do that distract us. There are things that help us forget about our worries or that we even have coping skills that we can employ that really make a difference in letting go of that. Um, I mean, I'm a huge believer in scripture memory, you know, just things that we can help combat that. And then when it moves to anxiety is when we talk about that one loop at the fair. And so, There really in September and October, you would not believe the amount of girls that I see who cannot stop talking about throwing up. Oh, gosh. And it's always right around the beginning of school. But but if I had to say the top five things that I see kids have anxiety around, throwing up is absolutely one of them. And so it's typically a child who doesn't throw up very often, hasn't had many stomach bugs in her life. And then something happens where she gets sick, she eats something or she gets some tummy bug and she throws up and then she cannot stop thinking or talking about the throwing up to the degree that I remember a little girl that I was seeing who couldn't sit with kids anymore in her class. She would have to sit at a table by herself because she felt like if she got close to them and she was a fourth grader at the time, if she got close to them, she was going to get whatever they might possibly have, even though they didn't necessarily have anything. And then she was going to throw up and she just couldn't stop talking about it. And then it would end up even getting nauseated on the way to school which perpetuated the idea, you know, yeah, just just thinking about it. Yeah. And you can feel nauseous when you're anxious, right? Right. Right. mm -hmm. So then like a fear, if we were to take this one, a fear of, you know, which is so normal, my kids have gone through that, a fear of throwing up in school or just throwing up. It moves all the way. When we get into anxiety, you know, someone, if a mom's listening is wondering, well, how do I know if it's anxiety? It's that they get stuck on the loop. And then there's almost behavioral changes around that too. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. They want to start to withdraw from whatever that is. They ask endless questions. I think that's a big marker for kids who are anxious. 
over and over and over. And so one of the things I recommend in the book is not ever letting them ask more than five questions about the same topic. Yeah, I saw that. That was so great. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, you were just feeding the loop. We think it will be. Right. Yes. Right. We're feeding the loop. Yeah. That is such a powerful statement. Well, and one of the things, so I read 23 books to get ready to write this book um, <laughs> because amazing. I just wanted to feel well-versed. And, and one of the things that I read that I thought was really important is the two most common strategies that parents use with kids with anxiety are escape and avoidance. And talking about feeding the loop, when they're afraid of something and we pull them out of the situation that they're afraid of, it just makes it worse. Because the reality is to work through it, they're going to have to do the scary thing eventually. We want to kind of prop them up in a way where they can do it with safety, but they're going to have to do it. And that's such a um, it's such a confusing message, I think, for so many parents right now, because naturally you want to protect your kids from any suffering, right? Right. Um, and then there's almost this sort of... And they're in a lot of distress over Yes, exactly. And then there's this sort of this overplay that if your kid is um, struggling at all, that you need to um, alleviate that for them, or you shouldn't leave them that, 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 that could um, leave long-term damage. I hear people worrying about that. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it's almost like a, I mean, I'd be curious what you would say about this, but trauma has become such a buzzword. It, oh, it totally has. Yes. Yes. That I think parents are so afraid their children are going to experience trauma because of it. Then it's like, what do I do? What do I pick? You know? Yes. It becomes confusing. It's so true. It, it totally has become a buzzword. And not that there's not genuine trauma, obviously. But Yes, Absolutely. You know, I was an anxious child. I mean, that's why I became a therapist, because a therapist changed my life in my early 20s. Um, and and then I all of a sudden really understood, not all of a sudden, I did a lot of hard work, but I understood what was happening and thought, gosh, I want to help other people do this. Which is so awesome, because I think that's part of the problem. As I sit with parents, there are so many parents who, I mean, you know, everybody who's listening knows when you're with someone who's really anxious, it's palpable. It's like it comes over to you in sound waves in the room. You know, you can feel it. And I will say to those parents, now, do you happen to have any family history for anxiety? I'll <laughs> right. try to be really, you yeah. know, softball. Them, and they'll say, not at all, because <laughs> they've never done the work and didn't even realize. And and I'm an Enneagram person. I don't know if you're an Enneagram Oh, no, person. I'm really into it and, and have had to because people want to talk about it in the therapy room too. I know. Well, I now will say to parents, so if you're a one on the Enneagram or type A, I just think you have some degree of anxiety and and you're younger than I am, I think. But we weren't talking about it as much when we were growing up. And so parents didn't necessarily know and they haven't done the work yet that you worked so hard to do. And so it's perpetuating the problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. And unwittingly, I mean, parents aren't meaning to do that at all. Oh, no, of course not. No. And in fact, they're trying to do everything they can. You know, that's what they're doing, you know, at all times trying to alleviate the stress for their kids. Well, you know, one thing you say in the book, too, is that girls typically blame themselves for things. You know, I thought this was such a powerful insight. It definitely resonates true for me with being a mom of girls and a boy, um, of being a woman, um, and of working primarily with women um, in therapy. It just made so much sense. Can you speak to kind of how that impacts anxiety in particular when girls are more likely to blame themselves. Well, I just think it makes it exponentially worse. And girls do that. I mean, that's just our default. And that's what research says too, as you're mentioning, that boys have a tendency to blame someone else, most mm -hmm. often their moms. 
<laughs> and girls default yeah. is just to go to themselves, whatever it is. If it's that they didn't do as well as they wanted to on something academically, if they missed a goal, if they just feel like they said the wrong thing in relationship. I have so many conversations with girls about conversations they've had that they're rehearsing. And again, when you think about that loop and think about how much girls are thinking about relationship, they just go back over and over and over mistakes they feel like they've made to the degree, again, that it's paralyzing for them. And so to help girls learn to give themselves grace, to learn that we all fail, those things are so important, I think, today in any of us who are loving or working with kids in any capacity, you know, how do we help them learn that as we're taking care of them? It's so important. And it's something that I don't think we even consider typically when we're thinking about anxiety. Right. And, and part of the problem too, honestly, I would say, and, and I want to say this with a lot of respect, but one of the things that I have seen over the years of counseling girls and families is that Parents are often on, harder on their oldest child and they're hardest on the oldest child of the same gender. And so here we have anxious moms who are really hard on themselves. And then they have a daughter who's a lot like them and they don't want them to be. And so they end up getting angry and kind of picking at that oldest daughter. Again, I don't want to, I don't mean to, of but I don't like these things in myself. And so I'm going to end up kind of fixating on them and you too. And so that grows the problem even more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's such an important thing to point out because it's, it really, when we're observing that, it's really a chance for two f- types of freedom, more freedom for the mom and then more freedom for the daughter or healing from anxiety, you know? And I think it's Brene Brown that says um, that the best gift you can give your kids is to do your own work or something like that. I'm terrible at quotes. Hallelujah. No, I'm a hundred percent with you. Whoever said it, however they said it, yeah. I agree. <laughs> right. 100%. Yeah. Which is hard to do in theory, but it could be the reason that you decide to do it is if I can't come up with a reason to do it for myself. At least I'm going to do it for my kids because I love them. I love that, Sissy. That is such a powerful message. Yes. And and yes, absolutely. That it's a gift to them. That's, you know, and sometimes kids are what motivates people. You know, I even, you know, in therapy, when we're talking about imagining something positive, it's easier for them to imagine it for their kids, you know, than themselves. So in the same way. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I have a friend. I'm a one and um, I it can be very hard on myself. Hopefully I'm doing enough of my work that it's getting better. But <laughs> when I was in my 20s, I had a friend. I was in some one-ish like downward spiral mad at myself. Yeah. And a friend said to me, you cannot get that angry with yourself mm. without some of the anger spilling over onto other people. Oh, wow. That is so convicting and I've never forgotten it. And I think it's especially as a like type A one person, I don't want to be angry. And so I'm trying to contain it and directing it mostly at myself because I want to save other people from it. And then the fact that it could be hurting other people just kicked my booty in a way that not many statements have in my lifetime. It's so eye-opening and, you know, and so I hope that that, you know, that's, that, that spirit is, is comes through about what we're saying about moms too, is that that's not what anybody wants. Um, but that it just, it just spills over, you know, we, you know, everything that we have kind of spills over if we're not really aware and working on it. Right. Exactly. You talk also, um, 
gosh, this was so helpful about how anger and constant questions can actually be caused by anxiety that you might have a child who is angry or exploding on you, um, that you're the safest person. So you're usually the brunt for that as the parent or the caregiver, but that, you know, so often we don't consider gosh, what might be underneath that is a really, really anxious child. Um, you know, and that, that girls are more typically to deal with anxiety by getting angry is what I understood from your book. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm so glad you brought that up because really that is, again, when I sit with parents and they will come in, so we do what we call parent consults. So they're not necessarily even bringing the child in yet, but coming in to say, hey, what what is happening? I need some help, resources, that kind of thing. And especially with younger girls, elementary age girls, or ones that are more perfectionistic as they get older, when I sit with parents, the primary emotion they describe coming from those girls is anger. And, and then the more we talk, the more I'll ask questions. And, and the thing is, because it's manifesting as anger, these parents feel exhausted and often angry back. Of course. And they think yeah. their children are being defiant. It often also looks manipulative because it looks like they're getting angry when they're not getting what they want. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what's happening really is a child. So as we talk and kind of drill down underneath it, it, it is when they're not getting what they want, but it's also in times of transition or if they had a plan. So it looks like she really wanted to go get some kind of treat on the way home from school because that's what you told her when you were picking, when you were dropping her off was going to happen. And then you pick her up and we don't have time to do that. And we've got to run five errands and then we've got to go meet your grandmother and, you know, something like that. And she melts down, it's not necessarily because she really wanted to go back and get ice cream. It's more because she had this plan. Mm. This child had a set plan of what they thought was going to happen after school. And for any of us, if we have even some low grade anxiety, if I have this plan that I think is going to happen on a Saturday afternoon and something throws off my schedule, I'm going to feel anxious and often get really frustrated, although it will likely be internal. So the child doesn't know how to keep that internally. All they know how to do to communicate to you is to cry or melt down because they don't have the words yet or the understanding to say, when you change my schedule, it makes me feel anxious. <laughs> you know, they just uh-huh. Uh-huh. can't get right. there yet. They don't have but those words. Yeah. Right. But that's what's happening. And part of why in the little girl's book, the Braver, Stronger, Smarter book, I have a feelings chart with um, my dog. It's her face who helps me counsel oh, so girls. Sweet. Because we want to help them learn to identify the emotion because, gosh, how different would our Saturdays look if we could handle the changes that are going to happen with more flexibility. And flexibility is one of the things that anxious kids have just in the least. I mean, they just don't have very much flexibility at all. And so to help parents understand that often that anger is coming from an anxious place can create and really engender more compassion in the parents for the child. I think that's one of the most helpful things we can say to them is that's why it's happening. And we want to always look what's going on underneath. Look at that. It's so helpful. It's so very, very helpful. And I often say, and maybe you said this in the book too, that anger is a secondary emotion, that we're usually feeling something underneath it. Um, but, but we're just not really taught that. So when we see our child 
rearing up or having a tantrum about not getting what they want, it's very normal that parents would think, well, you're just acting out. But this is such eye-opening information to really consider with compassion what might be happening and how anxious they might actually be. I love it. Yes. And I think back to that whole, so many of the girls are perfectionistic that get anxious. And those are the kids who are not going to say to a friend, you really hurt my feelings, or I feel really disappointed this isn't happening the way I wish it was, or even get angry at someone that there could be a healthy reason to be angry. And so those children are often going to internalize it and then come home angry again, like you said, because you're their safest people. And so it really is a compliment although it doesn't feel like it when they're getting angry. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. It's the worst kind of loving compliment. Yes. That's so <laughs> yes. true. Yes. Um, well, I want to talk um, some about kind of some of the things, not not even specifically, because people are just going to have to get this book if they haven't already. It's just, just so just chock full of so many things. I cannot believe how much you got in there. Um, but one of the things you talk about is um, underestimating um, our abilities. So we talked about that kind of with the anxiety definition at the beginning, but that if your daughter is a worrier, um, that somewhere along the way, you say that she's probably developed a faulty view of herself, you know, that she can't that she doesn't know how or that everyone else can, but she can't. And this kind of plays into increasing her sense of her own abilities, you know, not keeping our kids from the hard thing. Can you talk to us a little bit about that sort of underestimated ability? Well, and I really would say probably out of the girls that I see, I think 90% of girls at least have an underestimated ability. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, underestimated concept. They're underestimating themselves yes. regularly. And, mm. um, and so I just think that's so common for girls to do that. And so back to those escape and avoidance strategies we talked about before, if she comes up to something that she's worried that she can't do, which she's not capable of, she can't handle. And as a parent, you step in to rescue her. It just reinforces to her, yeah, you really can't handle it. So I've got to step in and fix it for you. Rather than when we help them come up with a plan, um, when we remind them often of you are capable, you've got this. I mean, those kind of messages over and over and over. You are so smart. You're so resourceful. Those kind of things. That really does remind them that we believe they're capable even when they don't. And that's a message we want every girl to be hearing with regularity. I love that. And it's, and it's such an accessible thing um, for parents that already love their kids, right, to be able to do. You know, um, when I read that in the book, when my um, oldest daughter would get worried about something, I would just start pumping her up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of I mean, it just, you can do this, you know, you are, you know, it just, it's such a tangible way for parents who, you know, aren't sure even as they're listening to this, what to do to say, you know, you can build their confidence because it's probably likely that they're not feeling confident when they're feeling anxious. Yes. I would say pump them, probably three things. I would say encouragement where we're reminded they can do that. Empathy. That does sound really hard. Yes. That's a hard situation to be in with a friend. I don't know what I would do with that teacher either. Gosh, that's tough. Encouragement, empathy, and then we land on questions. Mm. What do you want to do? What do you think is the right thing to do there? You are so smart. What do you feel like God's telling you to do? Because when we ask questions, 
we're not only helping them learn to problem solve, which is really important, but we're communicating, I believe that you're capable. Just even asking you a question. Oh, I love that. And even if they say, I don't know, mom, I have no idea what to do. Yes, you do. You're so smart. You got this. I'll help you think through it. And then keep asking questions of them over and over, especially as they move into adolescence. I think it's so important to be doing that with kids but really younger too. Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love how that automatically tells them that, you know, I believe in you. I think you can figure this out. You know, I think you can come up with something that feels better. Yes. And that, you know, takes me to something else I wanted to talk about is is this idea of reassurance. Um, you know, when, when we perhaps have an anxious child, you know, or, or an anxious daughter, it, it's very natural to want to say, everything's going to be okay. This is why everything's going to be okay to really to reassure them. And I'm sure, you know, of course, some reassurance is helpful, but, but it's also pretty tricky how reassurance can then lead to some feelings like we were just talking about of underestimating their ability, right? How normal it is for a parent to want to reassure an anxious child, but how that not, that's not necessarily going to be the best thing, which is really counterintuitive. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think it's counterintuitive because everything in us wants to nurture the kids we love and to to help them make make them think it's going to be okay. And and part of where I think the anxiety breakdown is with kids today too is I remember a girl I, I was talking to a girl about her faith and she said something like we were talking about how you can understand God. And she said, well, I just don't feel like he's there all the time. And I can't sense his presence all the time. And I said, well, do you feel like your mom's there every second for you? Can you sense her presence every second? And she said, uh-huh. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, yeah. I, I'm not sure. But but I think that's this sense of if you're always there, you're always fixing it for them. Not only do they not know they're capable, but... If you're saying everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be okay, we know that it's not in reality. There are really hard things that happen every day. And and I think kids are not prepared to the same degree that we were in a lot of ways because we're doing all this dumb Instagram messaging of living my best life and best day ever. (laughs) So kids think, okay, I'm supposed to be living my best life and I'm not. And my friends hurt my feelings and I feel disappointed. I feel angry sometimes and something must be wrong with me. You know, all of it just perpetuates the same idea that so many kids are struggling with. And so when we have messages, I don't know, when I teach a parenting seminar on this content, I show the ad, which you need to look it up if you haven't seen it. It's a Nike ad where um, Serena's dad is preparing her for the U.S. Open as a little kid. And, and then it goes through today, Serena Williams. And he does all these great things. And basically the message he's giving her is you can do it and it's going to be hard. And that's so much of what we want to be saying to kids. The reassurance is you're capable. You've got it. And it's going to be hard, but yes. you can do it. And and I think I had a mom one time in my counseling office say to me, okay, all this stuff about how you're supposed to tell girls that they're brave and they're strong and all these things. She said, I just feel like that's going to be more pressure on my daughter. Well, I think when we're saying it's not something you have to rise to, but it's who you are already. Like God already put all those things inside of you. It's just a part of who you are. And so it's just tapping into it. Like you would anything else that's a place that he gave you a gift and you don't have to do something more or try harder in it. It's already there. 
you know, that we continue to reassure him in that way. Like you can do hard things because you were made that way. Oh, I love that. And so then back to, you know, building them up with truth, not something that they need to aspire to and have an Instagram life, but that life is going to be hard and that they are capable, that both mm-hmm. of those truths together. Yeah. I love both that. Both of those truths together. Yeah. And I think that what's scary for parents is that how are we going to help them with their anxiety? Uh, uh, it just seems so overwhelming. But what you're what you're offering to us is really, really graspable. You know, we can do that. We can tell them that, you know, life is going to be difficult and you're capable and God is with you and he made you strong. You know, we can do that. Exactly. And help them figure out the next thing that nothing insurmountable when we're doing it a step at a time. And I outline a path. I mean, we would know it as exposure therapy, but it's helping kids learn to do the scary thing. And so how can you help them each step along the way and to continue to say those messages of it's going to be tough, but you can do it. You got it. Love that. Um, well, then, you know, just a couple more questions as we wrap up. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about the caregiver, you know, or the parent and doing their own work and how that's really a gift. Um, you say in the book that um, coping skills are not only taught, but they're also caught. Um, and I think this was so freeing for me as a mom to read, too. And I imagine for so many parents that um, allowing our children, not not presenting a, a model of perfection to them, that's 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 actually not going to help them, but having them see us work through something and use our own coping skills is actually really positive for them. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think, yes. I mean, it's even what we were talking about just a second ago, but for them to see that you hit hard things too, and that you feel like you're capable. I mean, I just think that's so important for them. And not that you're necessarily over-processing it in front of them or talking through all the emotions with them. And if they're an adolescent, they don't care anyway because they're narcissistic enough to listen for about seven (laughs) seconds. Like I talk to parents all the time about even talking about failure in front of kids, especially girls. It's so important. I did the dumbest thing at work today or I really think I blew it when... But even just to move on to say, but this is how I'm going to work through it, or this is what I think I can do that's going to help. You know, it doesn't have to be that you're sitting and giving them a lesson or you're talking about your life for 25 minutes, but at the dinner table to just turn to somebody up, to turn to another adult and say, hey, this happened today and this is how I handled it. It's just so good for them to hear. So hearing you process it a little bit and also watching you. I mean, to say, like we talk in Are My Kids on Track about creating a space where kids can go and process their emotions, but to say something like, I'm feeling really frustrated or, and so I need to go to the space right now and write in my journal or draw or, um, you know, something like that. But also to feel anxious if they watch you take three deep breaths. Or for you to say, I have a family who, so I talk a lot about naming the worry for kids is really helpful. And so coming up with a name like the worry monster, or I have one girl who's perfectionistic and she named her worry monster, Bob. I don't know why she put Bob, (laughs) but I love it. Her mom has anxiety too. And so I meet with them sometimes together because we're talking about coping skills for the little girl. And this mom does a beautiful job of coming in and saying, well, she knows that Bob's been bothering me a little bit this week. And I told him he doesn't have any business talking to me. You know, just even hearing that is so good for kids 
that's kind of that idea of catching it. I love that. I love that. And it takes that standard of perfection that sometimes when we're, you know, wired for anxiety, we're also wired to be perfectionistic. It takes that out of the equation too. You know, right. that that's actually not going to help anybody, right. you know, to, exactly. to try to present as a perfect person. Well, and you're their hero as a parent. And so if they think you're doing it perfectly, they're going to feel like that's what they have to live up to. Yeah. Oh, that's such a powerful point. Thank you for saying that. Two last questions. So, so one question that I'm asking everybody is, um, what is one person or event or thing um, that helped you become the sissy that we are talking to today? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, we talked a little bit before that I lost my mom about three weeks ago now, mm-hmm. which means it's been a pretty tough holiday. And I was just thinking about her, even as we're talking about doing hard things. And and my parents divorced when I was a young adult. And my mom had never worked on her own and got a job. And, you know, she was going through one of the hardest things she had ever been through. And she rose to it and learned how to install a light fixture in our house that I think she never felt capable of. And I would say my mom was one of the smartest, strongest women I have ever known. And I also know she messed up sometimes, but I watched her walk that out in a way that I think made me feel capable of things I never would have imagined that I would be capable of. Oh, wow. What a gift. What a gift. And it is exactly that. And I am, as we talked about before, I am so sorry for your loss. And she sounds like just an amazing woman. She was cool. Yeah, she sounds amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that, Sissy. And thank you for um, coming on the podcast and talking to all of us. I know that people are going to be so excited. As I said at the beginning, you are so beloved. And you're just such a reassuring, wise, and relatable voice in so many of our lives. So I'm so, so grateful for you. And I'm so grateful to get to know you some. And I'm delighted that you're doing this. You have such a kind reassuring voice. Oh, so thanks, grateful Sissy. for you being out there. You're very reassuring in the midst of all the technical difficulties too. Yeah. <laughs> we had a lot. Uh, we made it through. And you know, where can where can people find you? I know that that this book I want everyone to to run not walk to get it if they haven't already raising worry free girls. Yes, raising worry free girls. Yes, and braver stronger smarter for elementary age girls. I have bought two copies. <laughs> You're so sweet. And then raisingboysandgirls.com is our website and so we do a lot of speaking all over the country so we might even be close to where anybody is and then I'm on Instagram at sissy goff and then we also have an account that's raising boys and girls. Awesome. Okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Sissy, and such a pleasure to talk to you. You too. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Sissy Goff as much as I did. I found her to be just as warm and relatable as I expected she would be from listening to her podcast and from reading her books. My hope is that if you are someone who is struggling with anxiety or you have a child that is struggling with anxiety, that you will have some takeaways to apply as you continue on that journey. And my hope is also that you would feel a great sense of not being alone and a great sense of hope. Now, for more about Sissy and everything she's doing, go to the show notes and we will have everything linked there and where you can find her. Thank you.
For more information, please go to stillbecoming.net. Please subscribe and review Still Becoming wherever you listen to podcasts if you like what you heard here today. Please follow along on Instagram. You can find me at Monica DeCristina. Thank you for listening.